Brave Care is trying to take primary, urgent, and remote care, build it out of the same, you know, kid-friendly but parent, uh, parent design clinics to make everybody, the two sides of our transaction, both the parent and the child, feel really comfortable so that we can deliver the best medical care possible. Welcome, everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay Ventures. On this podcast, I interview innovators about their strategies, industries, and decisions. On this week's episode, I chat with Darius Monsef, founder and CEO of BraveCare. BraveCare is creating a new and better healthcare system for children by providing primary, urgent, and remote care under one roof. Now, Interplay is lucky enough to have been an early stage investor in the company, and we are very excited about what they're doing. Darius is a serial entrepreneur with multiple exits under his belt. BraveCare is not his first rodeo. But despite what you might think, the entrepreneurial journey doesn't get easier with time. It's always arduous. Darius and I explore this topic, why he chose to go through Y Combinator several times, the startup scene in Portland, and we talk about perceptions of wealth in the tech community. We covered a lot today, and I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by ReShield. ReShield is part of the FounderShield family of insurance brokerage companies. It's a tech-enabled insurance brokerage focused on real estate. If you're interested in learning more, visit reshield.co. Darius, thanks for being on today. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to start off by, Darius, by introducing you. Uh, I'll help people get ramped up a little bit. We can dive into more topical issues. Sure. So for those who don't know Darius, he's a successful serial entrepreneur. He is on his fourth venture-backed company. His current venture, where he is the CEO and co-founder, is a company named Brave Care. The company is reimagining healthcare for children. Uh, for full disclosure, Interplay is an investor, and suffice it to say, we think he's doing something awesome. So pay attention. Uh, before Brave Care, he was a co-founder of a number of other companies, including Sitebox, Credit Market. He's had successful exits. Um, and before going out as an entrepreneur, and I may be integrated in some of your entrepreneurial story, he spent some time as the head of growth at Zapier. Mm -hmm. And I have a question for you after this, because I don't think anyone knows how to pronounce the company name. Yep. There's a lot of Zapier and a lot of Zapier, and no one knows you know, to correct each other on that. It's confusing. Uh, he did a tour through Autodesk, Microsoft. Um, and you know, there's another side to Darius, which I don't know if we're going to cover too much today. He has an eclectic side. And I don't know if it's all true, but at least, at least he lists online that he is a ballroom dancer and cattle rancher. So there might be yes. sometimes opportunities to talk about that. He went deep um, for that, but yes. There you go. Uh, and he's very passionate about impact and involved with a number of charities, including Make-A-Wish and others. And I think it's no surprise that his current venture is oriented towards a social impact of having a positive impact on children. What did I miss before we jump in? Uh, also co-founded two different nonprofits, but I sort of that could be in the realm of successful ventures, but you know, basically trying to build things that make the world a little bit better, both for-profit and non-profit. I love how prolific you are. So let's start off, uh, maybe go reverse order. Would you start by just giving an overview of Brave Care so folks have some context on what you're working on? Sure. Yeah, I met my co-founder who's a pediatric MD when my middle daughter split her chin at a bike park uh, as the parent of a nine, six, and three-year-old young kids. Uh, although we were most concerned about the injuries of the first one, we sort of three kids in a little less concerned about them. But I met him in an emergency visit where 
my middle daughter needed to get her chin stitched up and I am, you know, in a fortunate position to have access to whatever healthcare I need for my kids, but got to experience the the really uncomfortable position of a parent who's really concerned about their kid in these urgent situations. Um, met him, got incredibly good care and sort of came out of that going, I think every parent deserves access to that regardless of a financial position. A lot of parents end up in the ER is 25 million ER visits a year for kids that are mostly unnecessary. It's because they don't have action uh, access to after hours or weekend care options. So Brave Care is trying to take primary, urgent and remote care, build it out of the same, you know, kid friendly, but parent, uh, parent design clinics to make everybody the two sides of our transaction, both the parent and the child, fairly comfortable so that we can deliver the best medical care possible. Um, we, I come from a technology background, so using technology to, to build the best personal and thoughtful experiences, not putting technology between a patient um, and a parent or a child, but using it as a way to make it a more efficient visit for, for both sides of that. And the ultimate goal is to be the national children's healthcare partner for, for parents. That's amazing. And, you know, hell hath no fury, like a frustrated customer who happens to be a serial founder. <laughs> yes. Right. Yep. So we actually, I've had a, a bad urgent care uh, experience and it's the same type of thing. I feel like stitches is the reason you go to the ER as a parent. And my little guy uh, ripped open his eyebrow, went in for Ouch. stitches. Fine. Got the stitches. They got it done. $26,000 bill for three stitches. And so the game is clearly dysfunctional and they expect you to dispute it, right? They're just taking advantage of people who don't know how the system works and you have to fight. So I, I'd love to hear how you're approaching the market differently so folks can you know, get an understanding of more than making healthcare affordable and good. How do you do it? And what is the, how does the experience fundamentally different for parents? Yep. So part of what you're talking about is we typically just say we're 10x you know, cheaper, one-tenth the cost of an ER visit. In your case, uh, we wouldn't even have been $2,600. I think my daughter's stitches were four or $500. So substantially less. And it's about... So much more you know, reasonable. Economies of uh, basically a much larger organization around a hospital. They charge more just for the basic visit fee. And then all the things you uh, sort of experience with just, uh, you know, an unfortunate need to dispute costs rather than transparent pricing. So what has been challenging about healthcare is I come from consumer tech and, you know, the common startup mantras, move fast, break things like that doesn't really work in healthcare. It's regulated as in some ways it should be. You have medical licensing, we have payer agreements, we've got HIPAA and privacy compliance. There's a ton of layers of bureaucracy. Fortunately, that also means there's a lot of room for improvement. It's just hard to get it done in this space. Um, I have great co-founders who have medical backgrounds. I try and tread uh, the balance of naivety about how healthcare currently works because I'm not trying to incrementally improve some bullshit part in the middle. We're trying to dramatically move it forward. So I don't really want to calibrate to how it is now and then look for improvements. It's just what could or should it be? And that is access, you know, either through technology or just broader hours of an in-person visit. Um, patient data, 74% of healthcare data is still transferred via fax, which is insane. Uh, it should be, we digitized all these patient records. We don't have the manila folders on the wall anymore, but now they're digital manila folders because those Images that were scanned haven't even been OCR'd so that we know what's in them. They're just images that one person has to go reference. So 
such dramatic improvements can be built if we just built the best clean single queryable data set of lots of you know wellness tracking events for kids tracking escalations and then ultimately outcomes so that whether us or a children's hospital we could someday just say here's all this data like go stop these really unfortunate events from happening in the future um so it dramatically moves forward with actually modernizing it and not modernizing it where you need to walk in and talk to a robot or whatever especially in pediatrics like kids believe in magic still. So if this space right. is scary, if there's not somebody warm and personal and knows to get on their level versus being a giant adult, there's a lot of things that can disarm a kid and that really helps you uh, deliver the best care. We can talk a little bit about it or not, but uh, telehealth has limited impact in pediatrics. Like COVID was the perfect opportunity to use this technology to open up access and transform it. And in pediatrics, you need the patient to be able to accurately describe the issue that they're having. I can tell you, I have a strained ACL on the back of my mm. knee on full extension. I have a sharp pain. Otherwise, it's a dull ache. My nine-year-old is just going to say her leg hurts. She might even say her back hurts because she doesn't understand sort of referral pain. Right. And a two-year-old has like no ability to communicate any of this. So even in person, the difference between a family practice or somebody who hasn't been as experienced with kids is they might be less skilled at really getting the kid to relax and be disarmed so that we can get good information out and we can do good diagnosis and treatment. So that's where the specialty and specialization and, you know, working with kids comes in. And then the technology is, well, how do we open access without removing this personal relationship that you can form with somebody who knows your kid and, and knows how to treat them? So you're cleaning the data. I get that part. For the folks listening, why would they choose to go to Brave Care over their current combination of a pediatrician and ER urgent care. Yep. We try and build the most complete solution. So I have been to Brave Care 24 times as a patient, as a parent, not as the CEO, walked in and depended on them to take care of me the same way they take care of somebody else. Um, so unpleasantly, I'm a regular consumer of my own services because a lot of those visits are urgent or unplanned but trying to be one consistent partner for a family. So, you know, the primary care visits, those are scheduled. We know those are coming. The unplanned, unfortunate, urgent care options. We're open 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. seven days a week. You can do a walk-in same-day appointment. So even the challenge and often why people overutilize the ER, especially 21 million single parents in the U.S., they have jobs that don't particularly give them time off during working hours to get in. And then I got to pull my kid out of school in order to do this appointment. So, they're trying to make a good financial decision by going after hours, but then often the only thing available after hours ends up being an ER. And so simply being able to have, hey, 7 p.m. on a Saturday, if that's when you need to get your well visit in for your kid, that's fine for us. So the convenience of access, meaning the hours and availability, we have 24-7 chat through our app. We staff our own pediatric triage nurses. So again, it's not just somebody who answers and says, well, let me get back to you. We, we are able to understand and, and give you good actionable information through the chat service. And then we have x-rays and pharmacy on site because, again, I've been in a clinic where we needed Tamiflu and now I got to hold a couple sick kids and go to the pharmacy and wait for 30 minutes. It's like, let's just do that for you in clinic and let you get home and get back to your life. So trying to really provide the most complete offering for parents and then use technology to ultimately give you your child's personal health record in an app so that over time you can track progress, do early intervention, or just best support your kid where they're excelling. 
What do you think the most common use cases will be for the the data side of it, the early intervention, and where do you think that really manifests for folks? I think there's a lot of opportunity for subtle intervention. So my wife is a speech language pathologist focused on early intervention and language delays for kids, which is the longest way to say speech delays. Um, but her skill is, you know, helping kids move their mouth in a way and, and basically form language. She can hear and know like, oh, this kid's got this little issue and it's often Hard for her in a social setting, obviously, to bring this up and suggest it to a parent. But it's one of those where the sooner that you do that intervention, the kid's going to have an easier time communicating. They're going to be more confident social. Like it has such a dramatic impact. And often it can be this small, fixable thing that we can hear. Like that's an easier example to sort of be like, oh, right, I can hear when a kid has a lisp or maybe there's a delay in, in some of the words. What we want to figure out is what are all the other things that might be underlying height, weight, motor skills, other things that we probably are collecting in all those digital manila folders we can't get access to. Mm. But if we put them all into one, it's just an opportunity to help every kid reach their potential by using the information that is being collected. It just isn't usable right now. Are there, are there research organizations that are compiling the data and making sense of patterns and signal in it? Or has that not even been done because the I data think is still in these manila folders? I think there are organizations doing it. I mean, we've got great children's hospitals around the country. They're doing it with the acts, with the data they have access to. But even, I don't remember how many there were. Um, there are probably hundreds of EHR, EMRs. This is the software that every clinic uses to run their business. Those don't connect to each other. We've had to move a couple of times. And like, I'm getting PDF images every single time I move. The data does not connect and sync. So... Our hospital systems are having access to only the data that has been collected. There are very large players like Epic that do probably have a lot of patient data, but it, it's not uh, anywhere near as substantial as it could be uh, that we have access to. Yeah, it's not the way we think of things in the tech community. No, I'm often, you know, the interesting balance between, between being a consumer kind of oriented startup as well as a healthcare is that the consumer startup people, when I'm pitching them and I could show them our, our check-in app, that's an iPad we just hand to you so you don't have to sit in the visit room. And then it's this really beautiful step through, take a photo of your insurance card. If I demo that to a consumer investor, they're like, yeah, whatever. It's like, no, no, no. But like in healthcare, this is really hard to do. Like this is magical <laughs> in this right. space. This is just super basic in any consumer app. So right. in healthcare, they're, they're miles behind where we could be compared Amazing. to anything else. So how's it going so far? It's going very well. Um, it was a hard year. Um, so our story is basically two years ago, we got started. We, I took over the clinic I went into first as a patient. It became our first brave care clinic. And honestly, we started in a position really tackling the, ER, uh, the urgent care side of things. Let's pull these millions of ER visits away by having urgent cares. What we learned about moving forward with that, though, is nobody wants to have a relationship with an urgent care. I'm like actively trying never to come to you. And so if we wanted to build a relationship and have a consistent touch point, that was to move into primary care, which is exactly what primary care is. It's a relationship. I'm expecting you to come in at least once a year. And so as we got started, we sort of evolved the platform to say, oh, well, primary care really adds value to the urgent care. And when you are somebody's primary, you can capture the urgent. So there's this reciprocal relationship between those two sides of service. And then we are always going to build great technology because it's my background and, and where there's opportunities. But COVID allowed us, basically, we were growing very well. We went through a Y Combinator summer 19 batch. So I guess that'd be a year and a half ago. 
had raised a big seed round, really had the resources to go and grow, open more clinics, and then COVID sort of took the wind out of our sales early March. Um, I have not had anybody provide me other data, so I believe it's true. I think we were the first of any company to ship a COVID symptom checker. So March 2nd of 2020, we repurposed the logic sort of tools that we had built for symptom checking to build a COVID symptom one. We shipped that. We very quickly responded and built telehealth for, for 14 different states but limited utility. I mean, there's only kind of visually diagnosable things. And if you looked at, we've done more than 13,000 visits now, we're going to publish a paper on it, but it's like 70, 80% of those visits that we did in clinic had to have been done in clinic. It was a shot, a stitch, a lab, an x-ray, breathing treatment, mm -hmm. things that there's no dongle on a, any device that's going to facilitate in the near term. Right. So we did what we could. Um, it was really hard there through the fall, but the harder thing that we did was we raised a little bit more money to maintain the momentum we had, sort of like leaning into the abyss instead of doing this, what I understand why startups would do it. Well, skeleton crew, let's make sure we survive. What we saw was that, you know, as a startup, you're kind of planning to lose money every month for some long period of time. That's not how normal businesses operate. So COVID just meant I was bleeding more than I was already planning to bleed. Mm -hmm. But for a typical kind of small business clinic, that can be catastrophic to have several months of no income or very little income. So as the overall capacity for pediatric care would be reduced, if we leaned into this and got our second clinic, built a mobile clinic, increased capacity, the goal was that when there would be a return in demand, we'd just be better positioned to capture it. So it turned out to be the right decision. We went ahead and during a pandemic with riots and a recession and then fires in Portland, Oregon, we still got our second clinic open, which was hard to do. And we had our mobile clinic. And then in the fall, we saw a pretty dramatic return uh, in visit volume. A lot of that underlying is COVID testing. We do rapid COVID tests um, in both of our clinics. So enough of a return in growth to validate all these assumptions that we had when we started to be able to go raise our series A, which we just closed, which appreciate your support in to, do the next phase of this. We've made it, made it work in one market. I think Portland was a great market in that it is a lot like, I mean, Portland's a special city for a number of reasons, but it's a lot like 70 other cities that are half million to a million population in the US. By making it work in a city like that, just better helped us understand that we could also do this in a number of other cities. And our expansion plan is not tier one, high density urban markets, because often that's where families or people defer families for careers. We want to know that we can exist in tier two and tier three markets where people have more kids and get started earlier. So right. the Series A is, is letting us drive that expansion, which is what we're doing now. We're opening four additional clinics, building the next couple uh, mobile clinics, and then having to build all of the software on the back end to enable us to deliver care. So uh, it's it's good. I you know That's always fun coming off of a fundraising announcement because you get a lot of congrats on social Right. It's like getting a giant credit card. It's like, thanks. <laughs> I have a lot of work to go do with right. this money now, but it looks right. nice, feels nice. Spending um, it is not easy. You have to hire people and yes, do the uh, stuff. Also, because we've been well capitalized here and it was required because we had to do hard things was it's, it is, uh, I think, dangerous and easy to spend money when you raise a lot of it. So that's also the balance of not leaning so much on like, oh, just hire the person to solve this problem. But like, do we really need to solve it? There's another kind of critical eye that really has mm. to be used when you're well-funded. Mm. So what, what cities are you going to next? So where should listeners look for the next Brave Care locations? Yeah, we're already two in Portland, sort of our home market will expand into the Beaverton area of Portland. Austin is our first sort of major new market that we're opening. And we're uh, 
also moving into North Carolina. It's an exciting opportunity for us to test out a different way to expand into new markets, which popped up in, in North Carolina. That's fantastic. So can we talk about Portland for a second? Sure. So it's not one of the primary startup hubs historically. Yep. The world is decentralizing in a wonderful way. What is the, what's your experience as a founder in Portland? Is it a viable place to be doing business? What do you think about this, uh, the region? I have mixed feelings of it. I've sort of lived on and off in Portland for 15 years. I started my first company, Color Lover, is the first thing that ever became venture-backed, and then I had an, out, uh, an exit from. So uh, there is a love frustration with the market. I think in terms of a community to live in, for my kids to sort of feel more normal and be around a great mix of people, I think Portland's great for that. So quality of life is incredibly high. There is a tech scene. Um, I, it's clearly not as strong as some other markets. I mean, LA, San Francisco, now Miami, New York, like you just around so many other peers that are actively doing what you're doing. Uh, Portland, I still think is probably a lot more optimistic or ambitious about doing startups than it actually is happening in market. I think it's going to be interesting post COVID how much more it gets distributed though, because I, despite, you know, even my previous company that I co-founded Sitebox had a very big exit for Portland's tech startup scene. Right. After that, raising money for Brave Care, I don't have any Portland investors. Yeah, I went, mm. it was, I went back to the Bay Area and LA and New York and Boston. I, we didn't have, maybe for me, because I'm used to things moving faster, the kind of investor that I wanted to spend my time with here in Portland. Mm. Um, but I think again, the sort of, uh, decentralization of where startups need to be, uh, I didn't, even for my series, a, a huge benefit of doing it during COVID is I didn't have to do it in person. So I wasn't flying all over the country like I normally am. Right. So if we're D okay, it doesn't matter where this, the investor is. Yeah. If we're doing this now, maybe I can keep my company here. I don't get pulled to the Bay or somewhere else where I need to have these in-person meetings. So I think hopefully the startup scene catches up to the high quality of, of life here. Um, but again, I think it's a mix, uh, sort of give and take. Yeah, and with, with remote venture investing fundraising process, right? When you don't have to meet the invest investors in person, what is missing from the Portland ecosystem for folks listening who are would-be entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs in other cities? Mm -hmm. What should they come and add to Portland or help build to put, put jet boosters on it? I think it's boost. It's builders. This is exactly the, the point. Um, Portland, again, has benefited from some incredible you know, Nike's here, uh, Columbia Sportswear, there's these big companies that I think have built great products and companies, but people that come, uh, Intel's, you come from kind of long-term employment, there's just less risk tolerance to go actually do the startups. And so I think a lot of the community here has historically dabbled or dangled their feet in the waters versus that I'm going all in on this thing because I believe it to be true, fail or succeed. And I try and find those, I have a small, I make tiny angel investments, but mostly I do it because fortunate enough to one be privileged in many different ways. Uh, but one of them is a previous experience of living in San Francisco, going through Y Combinator twice, having access to a lot of investors, meeting founders who are here and saying, look, if you're going to go all in on this, then I will back you early and I will try and help you through this fundraising process because it's really counterintuitive in a lot of different ways. What, no offense, y'all look for and how you run your processes it really is an opposite sometimes for how I run my company and how I think about what I'm doing. So just helping somebody navigate these things just because I've done it a bunch of times Absolutely. Um, is something that I think is helpful for the community. And you had moved to Portland from San Francisco, the Bay Area, right? 
Yeah. So there's a couple other stops there in between. So my wife and I are both born and raised in Hawaii. Um, we, I was at Microsoft at the time when we re-met second grade, uh, when we first met, but 10 year high school reunion was the full reconnection of us getting together. She was in San Francisco. I really wanted to do this startup that I'd started full-time. So I moved from Seattle, I left Microsoft and I moved to San Francisco full-time with all that I owned in a car and no savings. But luckily she was very supportive of, I, she saw some potential. She should be an investor because of clearly not a lot of resources at the time, but um, lived in San Francisco, went through iCombinator. When we got ready to have our first kid, we tried to move back to Hawaii um, and live there. And then probably a year into that, I got sucked back because there was zero community out there to support what I was doing. So we moved back to San Francisco and then post exit to Autodesk of that company. Getting ready to have our second kid, we moved home to Hawaii again. This is where uh, post exit, I can choose how to spend my time again, very uh, lucky in being able to get an exit that would set mm -hmm. us up that way. Uh, this is where we bought 40 acres in our hometown. I got cattle. I spent, I would say three years sort of jokingly losing my mind. Um, and then ultimately I ended up Why were you losing your mind. I, for better or worse, am most fulfilled by doing hard things and startups are mm -hmm. every single day. Some there's some challenge. There's something that I have to rise to. Um, I should know this as in being from Hawaii. Hawaii's culture is a little bit of the opposite of that. Really, it's it's there to relax or connect with nature, not your device or all the busyness. So when I got home, having come off of a decade of high energy startups, I filled my life with all of the same chaos and stress, but none of the fulfilling. It was just like I had land to take care of. I had a house we were building. It was just busyness with none of the fulfillment. Mm. My analogy, I was chainsawing water until that motor blew. And I really had like a popping depressive moment where it was like, oh, all of these layers of privilege are hiding the fact that I'm depressed. I'm not happy. Even with all the things that I was able to have access to, what mattered most to me, the fulfillment of building and making wasn't there. And again, supportive wife and that we basically had a dream life in Hawaii is like, I think we have to move out of here. We got to go. Didn't wow. want to go back to the uh, Bay Area. We really, again, we mentioned this a little bit earlier. I'm trying to sneakily get my kids to not know all of the privileges they have and just sort of live a more normal life as long as possible. And Portland felt like a great way to just live in a normal community and, and be around that. So she let us do this test and move back to Portland, uh, which fortunately worked well, gave me the energy and inspiration again. And then my daughter obviously got hurt, which is how we started Brave Care. For COVID, we moved back there early on because we felt like, man, there was space. We have now been in Hawaii, although in Portland right now, for more than a year, just because there was lower, lower COVID case rates. And it was a nice place. So if you're going to run things remotely, having them, all three kids, be able to be in school was, was a pretty supportive environment for them. That's great. So one thing you kind of alluded to there is um, choosing to go to Portland versus back to San Fran. And given that there's a huge ecosystem in the Valley, um, you are networked in the Valley. Mm -hmm. Why not raise the family there? There's probably a couple things. One, obviously it makes sense. A lot of my friends are all startup founders and my wife, one, does not care about technology or startups or any of that. Uh, it's a good balance for us to have in our home. But also it means like when you have a dinner conversation with a group of people, it's not even just about the device. It's about the SDK that just released for the new version or whatever. It's like that's not interesting, normal people conversation. So right. it was always harder for her to engage um, 
in just what people were interested down there. Um, and I think also, you know, because I had this position of the fortunate place of already building those relationships, I knew that I can same day fly to San Francisco if I needed to, if I needed to maintain those socials, I could from Portland, but really setting my family up for the best life felt like Portland would be the place to do it. Um, and then also just the hyper, we talked a little bit about too, that's just the focus on wealth that happens in San Francisco. And it's fine because to be fair, it's a lot of our motivation. Like, honestly, you probably, it shouldn't be your only motivation to go do entrepreneurship and tech stuff, but clearly that is the most massive exponential way to build wealth in a short period of time. So it is obviously there, but I didn't want my life to be so much focused on that. And I've had exits. I'm in a very fortunate position, but we're always in this world of comparing ourselves to whomever is over the neighbor's fence. And among startup founders, the person on the other side of the fence is like a mega billionaire. And it's just sort of like a very distorted reality, uh, depressing thing versus like, are actually like incredibly well positioned compared to most every other family. Let me try and remember that every day rather than feeling jealous of what somebody else has. Yeah, it's a very strange dynamic, the relationship with money in the tech community in particular, because fortunes change so quickly for folks. Yeah. You know, the, the poor entrepreneur walking through your hallways, you know, a couple of years ago, after their exit, they're the, the very affluent, super wealthy, angel LP, you know, running their own family <laughs> office, the whole thing. You know, it's, it's, I, I think I hear what you're saying. It's very hard to stay grounded because... Um, as you're in this career for a while, you know, if you're talking to people, there's going to be success, which is a beautiful thing. I love seeing all my friends doing well, but it's, you have to remember to look down, not up, so you can appreciate yep. where you are in the stack and be grateful for it. I think it's very hard psychologically for folks. Um, so I think this is a common thing, actually. I, I, we, I think we both probably know people who made a lot of money and that got them into different circles and then became depressed about how poor they were, even though they were rich. Yep. Well, I think the other thing I I recognize, and I don't think fully recognizing my luck takes away from the hard work I also put in, but I also know people who have worked harder than me and not been lucky enough to have the exit. My greatest fear as a parent was going to be coming back into a late dinner and telling my kids, like, this is going to be the one. It's like I dragged them through 20 years because I knew I'd never let that go. I would be trying for my whole life to have some validation that I could build or that I have good ideas or whatever it is. And I was very lucky and I obviously put hard work into manifesting that luck, but I know great people who haven't had that yet. And so you not only have the, let me compare myself up. Often there's the carnage down below of people who are putting totally. their lives and dreams in and may not ever make it there. And that's like, sometimes looking down and it can be as depressing as it is looking up. And so I wanted to be able to be in a position to try and give back where I can, but overall put myself in a position for my family, at least to be fairly neutral to that. That's a great perspective. Uh, one thing that's interesting about your story is the fact that you went through Y Combinator twice. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I, th I think most entrepreneurs would look at that and say, Hey, you go through the first time you get the network, you learn what they have to teach you. And then next time you just do it solo. Yep. Uh, I'd be interested to hear your rationale for the second journey through Y Combinator. Well, what's funny is the when I got accepted the second time, my brain went like, oh, I'm a two-time YC founder. That puts me in some exclusive club. And then I thought, 
well, probably the super successful YC founders don't have to come back a second time. So it was kind of a funny backhanded compliment to myself. Um, but honestly, why I did it was that when I came out of Seattle and having lived in Portland before, I had no access to the Bay Area. I didn't know how to raise a round. I was cold emailing investors. It was never going to work out. So YC was this massive opportunity for me to sort of get into startups and do it for real. So, I mean, it was life-changing to get in the first time. We had raised seed rounds for that company. We had a great exit, life-changing uh, to Autodesk in 2014. And then this is when we thought, oh, we're going to move to Hawaii permanently. And so the three mm -hmm. years I spent, I did do another startup, two of them technically. I co-founded Sitebox, but largely that was my very good friend, Travis, who is founder and CEO, and he ran that incredibly well. I was just the big shove out the door. But I did try and build my own startup from Hawaii. I was flying to LA all the time. I, that one didn't work. So I'm sort of two for two is what my uh, success rate is so far. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, a tangent there on, on film. Yeah, so why'd you, go back well. to, why'd you go back to Y Combinator for the second round? Yeah. Um, because I basically killed my reputation for three years. Like what's interesting mm -hmm. in startups and tech is that it's almost better to have a massive failure than to just be quiet for some period of time. Like if I raised tens of millions of dollars and a huge blowout failure, it probably would have been better for my career, for my network than to have sort of limped along quietly on a startup for three years. And so when I came back, what really one motivation for me in doing my Combinator again was how do I kickstart all that I built before? What's the fastest path back for me to get on this podcast, to sort of have awareness, to be a part of these founder leaders? And Y Combinator is really specifically built for that. It's to help you very quickly build hype, momentum, and connection for your company. I think it was interesting. Uh, I don't know if YC would like this perspective or not. But I think what every other accelerator incubator gets wrong that is modeled after YC is that YC is not about the company you're building. It's not mission and value statements and all these things. It's just raising that first round of funding. Because if you cannot get a product and validate it, then none of that other stuff matters. And so, so many of the other ones that compete, and I'm a mentor to some of those other ones with YC, they add all this curriculum and you know time to try and you know compete with YC. But all that curriculum doesn't matter if the company can't have a product that people will start paying for as fast as possible. So YC is this uh, pressure cooker momentum towards raising around. The second time through, this is a, sort of a funny full circle, is when we were first doing my company, which was Color Lovers, which became Creative Market, I was like building a design community with color pre the sort of big Figma sketch design renaissance that we had. So it was hard to raise those rounds. And I watched other startups. This is the other problem with venture startup life is like, how, how did that startup raise this massive round? Like, well, we've got so much more validation than them. And that can be yeah, depressing. Totally. Um, and Gumroad was one of those companies. We, I'd met Sawhill out in New York several months before that. I think he maybe was still at Pinterest. And then he moved out to San Francisco and raised this huge round for Gumroad. And I was so jealous. I mean, for a number of years, I think I held like almost animosity in that I wanted it to not work because that somehow validated me. Um, but one, he did a mm. very thoughtful post not that long ago, maybe last year, about how hard it was even when he raised that round. And then I sent him a note because it's like, that sucks. For so long, I almost wanted him to fail to make me yeah. feel good. And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, I don't want any of that. I uh, Fortunately, we, we were able to reconnect and 
full disclosure, he's also one of our investors now. Um, but this time when we went back through Brave Care, we were one of the hyped companies. We were sort of raised the second biggest round during YC. I didn't go to demo day. I had enough connections and enough momentum to not have to go and do that. And I only, I mean, it's only one hate comment on Twitter, which is pretty good given a lot of the social media platforms. But this person right. was like, how could you possibly raise it? He basically was hating on us for raising a big round without a lot of validation. And I was like, I really get it. Like I've been you. So I'm actually mm -hmm. not mad at you for being mad at this. It's just like, there's other stuff you don't see. There's my history. There's the market. There's the connections. There's a lot of other things, but that can be so frustrating about fundraising. Yeah, you're a fourth time well. founder. Yeah, that there's the hater thing is real. Uh, I think in all communities, but it's also real in the tech community. Yeah, and I get it. I think uh, jealousy is rampant. Um, I, I think it's it's good for everyone on all sides of this to have a dose of humility because there's, mm -hmm. as you said, so much luck and so much challenge in this that yeah. terrific people don't make it, and you know, people who maybe shouldn't make it do. Yeah, there's a lottery going on. Yeah, but it's not about us, and it's actually not about our money. It's about, you know, building a better society. And that's the thing that the machine is very good at. It's not good at solving for individuals. No. And I would hope, I mean, this is a very value line for us. Like our series A, I'm very happy that we had a lead in City Light, which is an impact sort of focus fund. We are clearly a for-profit. I'm trying to build a big, successful business, but I, I don't want to do it at the expense of delivering great care. And I think in some ways, maybe healthcare shouldn't be for profit. It, you know, there's a very slippery slope to compromising the quality of care for business metrics and, you know, pushing people through a funnel. We wrote a healthcare pledge to match my providers that basically it's the Hippocratic Oath of Physicians pledge. We, we have one as a company that mirrors that. Like my providers committed to this, like, why well, run the business? I can actively sabotage right. your abilities by doing things that I really shouldn't be doing. So we really wanted to commit to this. I think I can build a hugely successful, very valuable company without compromising on those things. It might mean extra turns of the entrepreneur creative thinking wheel to figure out how we can still make the margins and the profits while delivering great care. Um, but it was important for us to commit to that. Um, and so I... Again, maybe it's the position of having previous exits and then getting to taste still unhappiness or pain even through that is like, man, I really am fortunate and I want to try and provide access to the same things my kids, every kid deserves that again, regardless Absolutely. of who their parents are. So let's uh, rewind for a second. Uh, you mentioned you had a lot of success raising the round out of YC the second time, mm -hmm. but you also told me earlier it was very stressful for you. Can you tell us a little bit about tattoo therapy? Yes, uh, I probably I do have a therapist and a coach. I think everybody should invest in their brain as much as their bodies as well. Um, and so it's probably a healthier way to manage this. But I've gotten good. I think this is maybe the sixth or seventh seed round that I've raised. Now there's a lot more in the pre-seed, seed, post-seed, post all of that. And so I have a process. I'm pretty good at running them. Um, and because of all the momentum of being in YC, I had like a packed funnel is all what you want. I, this was summertime. So we'd gone back to Hawaii to be with family and I was doing YC's batch. So I was flying back and forth and I had an incredibly busy day. I think it was 12 meetings. I took some of them zoom, some of them in person. It's like all that you want, all this hype energy. Mm -hmm. And the last meeting of the day before I headed to the airport, he said, Hey, you know, I'd, I'd be really curious if you could model this scenario out. And so on the plane ride home, I started modeling, but in startups, 
it's all assumptions when you start. And he wanted an assumption, two assumptions down the line. And I was modeling it. And then it got to a point where it hit me so hard. I literally almost passed out. Like I, I, I felt the like eyes going inward because I ran through this. Am I lying? Am, is this not real? Like I'm a good storyteller. So am I telling myself a story? Because right. I, I have all these assumptions and then he wanted all these ones that were added onto it. And I, it was so much pressure and anxiety. It really was this like acute whole, I think I'm going to pass out. I ended up sort of being able to tell myself, although it was hard to truly believe it, of I'm not supposed to know the answer to it. I, I know the building blocks. I know what we could do. I have a vision for where it could go. But there's a lot of unknowns along the way. That's the whole point of a startup, sort of checking boxes on assumptions. And so I have a, a friend uh, back in Hawaii who I have an arm tattoo um, in Hawaiian iconography. And I basically just said, hey, I need like five hours because I, I don't know the healthy way to process this stress and anxiety that I have. So if I could just be in pain for five hours and pull my brain <laughs> away from it then at least it would be something that might help me. Um, and it did out of my whole, maybe uh, the last round I didn't need to do it, but my entire arm is covered. So maybe right. in my career, my whole body will be covered at some point. Well, hopefully it's not that stressful going forward. Yeah, it is a challenge because you don't want to lose people's money. And no. you don't want to lie to people, but you also are hopeful and optimistic and you know what you're chasing. And so bridging between those two realities, it's very challenging. Well, I think also there's an assumption that, you know, we celebrate fundraising rounds and it's good. That's fine. It's nice to do this, but we, you know, sort of joked it's, I just, it's not my money. I got a massive credit card. I have a, I have a responsibility to use Absolutely. this money to do something with it. So we also, I get this feedback from my wife. I need to stop and pause and celebrate. And it's hard for me because I, I see where we're going and what I'm trying to do. And again, for better or worse, it's hard for me to celebrate anything because I don't want to feel like I'm there yet. I'm, I'm trying to have irrationally high expectations of myself and what I'm trying to do. What therapy and coaching has helped me do is, is short circuit the negative time that I spend sort of stuck in a, well, I'm not there yet. It's like, well, of course I'm not there yet. I'm never going to be able to get there. I don't want to lower my bar. I want to maintain it, but I just want to find some way to get out of that and go, okay, cool. Well, here's the things you've done well and let's move forward. And so, you know, we I didn't celebrate the A because I got stuff to do with the A. I mean, I, we had a nice, I had a piece of chocolate cake. It's a very good chocolate cake, but it was like, fine, now let's move forward. I love that. Uh, one of my, um, good friends recently taught me the phrase post-economic. And what he means by that is the moment when you've made enough money where your decisions are not all wrapped around optimizing for economic outcomes. Mm. Um, when you had that moment where you became post-economic, how did it change you as an entrepreneur? How you think about entrepreneurship, your motivations, et cetera? For me, at least, uh, and I wrote a blog post about this once. It was actually about like founder suicide because unfortunately there was a period of early 2014. So there's kind of back-to-back -back, uh, really unfortunate events with founders. And one of the hard things is you can't even confide often in the people who are closest to you of how hard it is because they would, any same person who loved you would like tell you to stop doing it. it sounds terrible. And I wouldn't want to confide in my founders. They're trusting me to lead. And so it can feel very isolating and very alone. And so the blog post is if you're ever alone, like there are other people who are here for you and don't ever consider that, uh, that other option. Um, but you know, I, I wanted to 
do something that wasn't just for me. I'm the youngest of seven siblings. I'm generally the one that was most entrepreneurial. I think fortunately growing up in Hawaii and having a sense of community and connectedness to people was a good balance of my mom, the hippie Montessori educator, my dad, very egotistical, you know, capitalist. I got a good balance there. And so mostly what changed for me is like, okay, I have enough, but my siblings don't yet. They're still working hard. My community is still working hard. There's a lot of people who will never have my privileges. So what can I do uh, to give back to them? Um, who's I'm going to forget who it's from, but there's a quote, you can never go broke by giving. Basically, you never go poor by giving. I I want more money to give it all away, um, basically. And there was an I think it was when Chris Aka and I had talked a number of years ago through YC, this conversation around the quality of life difference when you have $50,000 in debt to no debt. Like this is a life-changing change to not feel the burden of that debt, just to be neutral. To have 50,000 in savings versus zero, again, life-changing because you have resources, you have an ability to do something now. And then I think you feel it again, 50,000 to 500,000, 500,000 to 5 million. And then it just becomes less of a big difference. Like we got two homes instead of one, or I fly first or private sometimes. It's like, I don't care to have a wealth north of $10 million. Um, mm -hmm. You know, 10 million is enough to sustain my family and, and down ones for my kids and all this stuff. I really would give the rest of it away. Um, and there's so many areas and communities that obviously can need it. And this is where... The other thing I did for a number of years was co-founded a nonprofit that set up and run volunteer centers in disaster areas. I enjoyed that work because it was very similar to startups. It's like literally a problem every single day. If you're living in a community that just was wiped out by a mudslide or a tsunami or a hurricane, living in that community, what do you really need today? How do I problem solve with the resources that I have to do the best job to help you rebuild and get back? Um, I'm wired to do want to do both of those things, but to do it in the biggest way possible. Is that nonprofit still active? Yeah. So I was fortunate to help be a part of co-founding that. Hands.org is the website. Um, obviously, COVID impacted a ton of volunteer work, but previous to COVID was, uh, you know, maybe a dozen active projects around the world, tens of thousands of volunteers that have come through. Um, very proud of obviously having helped be a part of that story as well. And you mentioned there's a couple nonprofits you've been involved with. Was there... Yeah, the other one is called Nalukai. Nalukai means to be sea weathered or to weather the storms of life, which feels very apt for startups. Um, and so I was lucky in that I went to a private school growing up. I My dad could buy me a computer when I was a kid. And because of the ego of my father, I was told every day that I was special and that I was of worth. And then because of that, I think you look for it because you assume it to be true, sort of the the, the manifest destiny kind of thing. And so I started a nonprofit in Hawaii to right now it runs a summer camp, 20 to 40 kids a summer where we get them from around the state and we give them 10 days of that where I buy every single kid a laptop. They have the same MacBook that I have. So like you're on limitless, they wear the Nalukai t-shirt. And so you don't know once the kids get to camp who comes from a private school or who comes from a public school, they all earn their spot there. And often the same thing I felt being in the most isolated island chain in the world and then isolated from each other on different islands. And then even on the big island, I'm 90 miles away from a major town. I would, you're just friends with whomever versus we hear this from the kids in camp a lot is I never met somebody else like me, just thinks a bit mm. different and has really had this creative entrepreneurial drive in them. So we just want to nurture that in the next generation of kids and especially in a community that feels so disconnected from it to give back to the same place I grew up with matters a lot to me as well. Is the hope to build an entrepreneurial community in Hawaii or it's to empower people to 
take on more more challenging goals? What, what is what's the goal of that? It, it's a bit of both because. I don't want to ruin what makes Hawaii so special. And I think often we there's been an influx of a lot of uh, people moving from tech major centers into Hawaii this year because they have been vacation there and this was the year they could work remotely. But I would hope everybody comes with the, you came there because it is so beautiful and so special and so precious. Don't make it what you want it to be. Like you're going to come in again. This is our nature. We want things to be and it should change. We could... Uh, I just drove to the airport because we. I'm in Portland. It's my first post-COVID trip. The lower highway is closed. It was actually 40 minutes for me to round trip around, and I'm I'm going. My brain is going like, why is there not a police officer two intersections back to redirect people? And it's like there's these things that are frustrating there, and that's why it's like it's Hawaii's self-protective mechanism. It will try and maintain why it's special because it shouldn't be as efficient as everywhere else. Let's stop trying to make it something and and let it be what it is. But by trying to invest in the next generation, and there's a mixture in this camp of teaching and sharing Hawaiian cultural values as well as entrepreneurship and creative. Like, well, really, it's just solving problems. So Hawaii has its own set of problems. You know, how do we diversify the economic industries there? How do we become less uh, dependent on basically anything else? We have the most opportunities for renewable energy in Hawaii and we still import millions of barrels of oil. And it just like, there's so much that could be improved in the state. And so by investing all the way back in the kids who are going to spend more time and give to that community, they'll have hopefully successes and then come back. So rather than feeling like we import it, let's just go. It's a little bit more of a long-term view, but how do I invest into it today so that there's a value for tomorrow? That's fascinating. That's fascinating. Uh, I want to move through here. We're coming up towards the end. Um, you've started, you're in your fourth venture back company. There's mm-hmm. not a lot of people who can say that. Can you share learnings you had through each venture? I mean, they probably evolved. Yep. Maybe some insights from each one, if you can think back that far. Yeah, I think the first ones, again, that would be 15 years ago. I didn't know a lot. Um, also, so much has changed since then. I won. I was sole engineer, designer. I did everything back then. Uh, the ability to deploy things so much faster now, um, maybe is both good and bad. And that because it was so easy, less of a barrier to get started. I think every generation of every community has said something to the effect of like, well, it was different when I was whatever, uh, as if mm. it was better previously. So when I had to FTP up my code and I couldn't deploy automatically, like, so it's easier now, but it means maybe more things get started, but how do we focus that on, on the best things possible? Um, I unintentionally ended up in design companies for a long time. I like design. I care about it. I would brave care. I love it. You know, I love kids genuinely. Uh, my normal Zoom background is all my kids' artwork. I'm on the board of the mm-hmm. Montessori school. In my spare time, I have Cars Play, which is a, a car that looks like Lightning McQueen from the Pixar movies. I could do Make-A-Wish things. That's and I awesome. also during COVID acquired a, a Batmobile and a Batsuit so I can actually interact with kids as well. So those are the how I choose to spend my personal time. So being able to, I guess maybe one major thing was getting closer to who I really want to be and how I want to impact the world and starting to start up and the financial returns. I think before it was just like I happened into something and it was probably again, early 20s, not having any money, really focused on myself. Now I'm getting mm-hmm. to shift to well, how can I still do that? Clearly, it'd be nice to make more money, but how do I do it in a way that really gives different value to the world and, and to the community in which we're serving? Can I direct you a little bit on this? Could, could you give us, for the entrepreneurs listening, mm-hmm. a couple of tidbits 
things that maybe are off the beaten path knowledge that you've you've found along the way things that people just need to know like do this don't do that action items yeah one i guess it would be a little bit more philosophical but i think it's still really important because culture is super important in startups it's how you convince people to join you it's how you retain the talent hopefully it's building something long term and one of the lessons i learned uh might have been don hutchinson who's an angel um in the Bay area that had given me this lesson, but it was, we were building this family culture We're a family and I want everybody to feel like it. And it's like, that's really not what we are. Um, I think in some cases you don't fire your family. Some people probably should, they've got toxic relationships. What we've evolved to brave care, which feels a lot better is we're the women's world cup team. We're the, trying to be the best at what we do and win the ultimate goal in an environment where everybody else there has earned a spot. So I, I, trust them. I'm empathetic to their skill, but I can also provide some that. critical feedback because if somebody's standing off sides and they don't see it, I'm going to shout at them to tell them quickly they're off sides. I'm not critiquing your skill or your experience. You just didn't see something that I saw. So we're at Brave Care invested heavily in our leadership and communication and the culture. We have a full-time coach inside the company to help people provide critical feedback in, in a way. And it's been a very big topic of discussion recently, whether or not startups should have any political or ethical or moral decisions in them. Mm-hmm. I don't think we can do what we do and build better healthcare outcomes for all kids if we create an environment where that wasn't accepted or tolerated, uh, just because there are systemic things that prevent kids of color and other communities from getting access to really high quality healthcare. So right. it's important we have a supportive environment where we can talk about hard things so that we can make healthcare equal across all different kids. Um, And so I think investing into that culture earlier, anything that you do early on just will be perpetuated. So the kind of cultural things you put in place, I wrote mission and values and guiding principles, things that I wanted to be true because you'll hire people around those. And then again, sort of like minds acquire other like minds. So we're, we're 70 plus women in brave care, 50 plus employees, um, we're not quite to the cultural representation. I want to fully represent our our customer base, but I'm proud of the work we've done while acknowledging there's more work to be done. Um, so I think the, the maybe the non-obvious thing there is like you're making so many in the moment decisions. It It's worth a pause to go, how much will this become a pattern and then continue forever? And so every little thing you do is building the you know further rut in the path that you're going to continue to walk or building the muscle memory. So some you just need to do because you have to do them. But what are the ones that you really don't want to get in the bad behavior of? And, and you know, Any recommendations on specific things not to get in bad behavior of? Not allowing a space for people to give you criticism as the founder and CEO of a company. Um, I, I have a vision. I, uh, you know, uh, maybe it's like a democratic dictatorship, something like I need to be able to make long-term visionary decisions and not get everybody to literally provide input on it. But I also want to see where I have weaknesses and I have blind spots. I exist in a very narrow lens of the world and the experiences people have. So um, I think it's important to create an environment where you can hear criticism and use it to inform your intuition and then to go from there. I'm going to shift gears here for a second. Last question for you. Yep. Where do you see yourself in 10 years? It's interesting because as a founder, and especially having been through Microsoft and Autodesk, more bureaucratic things, there was a, there's a loop, an audio soundbite I would play that's like, well, I don't want to run Brave Care 10 years from now. Once it's like thousands of employees, like that's not me. I'm an early stage person. I like the creative, all these things. 
And uh, a coach of mine was like, you know, you're creating the company, right? Like, why are you creating one you don't want to be at in 10 years? Mm. I was like, oh, right. Like, wh- why, why is the default assumption I have to build something unpleasant to work at or not an environment where I can still be creative and feel connected to the things that I'm building? Um, so I think, you know, that has shifted to like, right, this actually can become my legacy. I think, again, deeply care about kids. Um, Brave Care is focused on healthcare right now because, you know, the foundation of any kid reaching their potential is their health. There are related things to be supportive, diet, nutrition, exercise, even apparel, toys. Those are all things that, especially in young kids, the toy you play with develops your motor skill that helps you. And so Brave Care has, you know, one, the challenge of opening several hundred clinics in the country will be enough of a challenge over the next 10 years. But given that I deeply care about children, there's a number of things and maybe I'm more running our philanthropic uh, education kids book department someday. Like it will be something that I can continue to do. Um, so 10 years from now, uh, very sad thought about how old my kid will be. One of them will be out of the house, which will be a change for me, but still focused very much on helping kids reach their potential. Darius, thank you for the work you do. Thanks for taking thank the time you. to be on the show today. Appreciate you. Thank you. Big thanks to Darius for joining us on the pod today. He really opened up about his entrepreneurial journey. I thought that was very real. I love what he's all about, and I'm very excited, as you might imagine, to watch Brave Care continue to crush it. I'll be rooting for all of them. If you like what you heard, please look us up with a like or a five-star review, and feel free to share with a friend. You can find me on Twitter, at MPD, and to hear more of my conversations with innovators, subscribe on YouTube, Facebook, or any other major podcast platform. Just search for innovation with Mark Peter Davis. 